giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Benji DeGroo, co-founder and CEO of Shipyard. Benji, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Why don't you, we start by, uh, if you don't mind, sharing a little bit about what Shipyard is and does. Sure. So uh, at the core of what Shipyard is, is working on is uh, ephemeral environments. Not everybody knows what that means. Uh, that is changing a bit. But essentially, uh, what we're focused on is on every pull request or commit for a feature, Shipyard manages and creates and builds and deploys uh, a ephemeral environment. So that's a disposable, one-off, on-demand environment that any stakeholder in your company, uh, internal company, can use. Um, and we focus on the tooling around that, on, on build pipeline, and then security around that, and then all kinds of other cool features that are, are kind of necessary that uh, pop up. Cool. So as a developer, I'm familiar with the concept of developing locally, putting up my pull requests. I'm also, we deploy a lot of stuff to Heroku, so I'm familiar with some of the infrastructure that Heroku might give. How did you arrive at saying, like, this is a thing that I want to work on and, and believe should exist? That's a great question. I actually am also a developer. That's my background. And throughout the course of my career, I've always been on the, the technical side of, of the company. And what that's translated to, because of kind of passion, to be honest, is always taking on a devops e type role. So throughout the course of my career, a, a lot of responsibility. I mean, I started off writing Bash scripts went to Puppet, did Chef for a while, did Ansible. Some way went back to Bash Scripts for a lot of this stuff. Um, then this company called Dot Cloud popped up, which obviously became Docker. And I kind of got obsessed with that. And then I had a bunch of friends at Google and they were telling me about this creepy thing called Borg and that <laughs> became Kubernetes. And, and so my career has kind of happened throughout that entire process. And throughout, DevOps has kind of been my passion Along with my co-founder, Peter, I was kind of a, a high-priced Kubernetes consultant in the New York ecosystem. Um, this is a few years ago. And a lot of companies were trying to make the transition to Kubernetes. And Peter and myself kind of came in and, and helped people that were struggling to find DevOps resources. And, and what that always kind of looked like was there was some bespoke version of a deployment system that was perfect for the person that wrote it. Uh, but obviously, it wasn't good enough for me and Peter for Peter and myself. And so we would rewrite it and it would be great. But then eventually we'd move on and someone else would rewrite it. And there was a few instances where we ended up going back to companies that we had are and just re-implementing what we had already done. And throughout that process of kind of being this consultant, um, we kept running into this ephemeral environment thing and building the same tooling over and over and over again. So Peter and I kind of on a weekend kind of got Oh, let's make a let's make a tool for ourselves. So we did that, and we kind of made this exoskeleton to help our consulting business. And as things progressed, we kept just kind of adding features, and it was really fun, and it was great. And then some of our customers or clients kind of saw that, and they're like, "Hey, can we click that button?" And we're like, "I guess." And so slowly, it turned into a product that was very uh, duct tapey and glued together, but it worked great. And to be frank, um, I had been through the VC process on the technical side in the past and kind of didn't want to go through that again. Um, the hamster wheel of needing to raise more and more money 
And so very, very averse uh, and was very set on a really nice lifestyle consulting business. And hell was going to have to freeze over for us to, to take any VC dollars. And then I don't know if you heard in March of 2020, hell froze over um, <laughs> and there was a little pandemic. And at the same time, uh, we got some preemptive term sheets and yada, yada, yada. Next thing you know, we're a funded company building out a, a really cool product. So that's kind of the origin story of where Shipyard came from. Really cool. I definitely want to come back to what building the product for you has been like and the funding and where you go from here. But let's come back to the product itself. As a developer, my normal workflow is I'm working locally. I'm able to run the application that I'm working on locally here on my computer. I put up a pull request on GitHub. I ask my team to review it. Once it gets reviewed from a code perspective or a design perspective and get a thumbs up, I merge it back in to like the main branch and I deploy it to a staging server, at which point I would ask my stakeholder, my client, whatever, hey, this thing you were expecting, it's on the staging server to be done uh, for you to check out. And everyone else on the team is doing the same thing. So where does Shipyard come in and why is it better than that? So where Shipyard comes in, it's after the local development, Mm -hmm. but before you get to staging or or really before you get to production. Mm -hmm. Because in practicality, a lot of people kind of turn Shipyard into their staging servers. But what happens is, you know, through webhooks, we hook into your GitHub And we see that there's a new commit that comes in and we automatically build and deploy a fully ephemeral environment for that feature. And what that gets you is a few things. One paradigm that we're seeing a lot of is when you make that PR, a lot of end-to-end test suites are being run automatically using shipyard ephemeral environments. And what that gives you is in some instances, before you even have a code review, you're passing the suite of tests Hmm. And what that gives you is, you know, you save a lot of time. If there's just a a dumb migration error or some typo or something like that, you're not wasting human capital or Mm -hmm. human energy on those environments. And the other instance there that gets really interesting is by bringing up these environments earlier on, product stakeholders and QA stakeholders can do their jobs earlier on in the process. And so you can avoid a lot of merge conflicts, right? So like you merge something and maybe there's an edge case that you hadn't tested for and the code review didn't pick up. Well, all of a sudden staging is broken Um, and some other team member that's using the same process as you are, now they're blocked Uh, or the client can't see that environment and and there's some other type of problem. But really we didn't invent this paradigm. This is, you know, this is what Fang does. Um, There's a reason why uh, I can't remember the last time that Gmail itself, like a button broke, or there was bad CSS or bad HTML. Um, same thing with Facebook, same thing with Netflix. Obviously, we all There's know the about obvious H- DNS outages. Right. I was going to say, I was going to say, we all know about, you know, AWS, uh, especially last, you know, in December of 2021. Now it's a, it's a tough month. But yeah, but from a UI, UX, and, mm-hmm. and kind of controllable release perspective, this greatly increases your internal stakeholders, the ability to get their hands on features earlier, find problems, and then get those back to developers. And and the other thing, um, and maybe this is a question for you, but have you ever been in a a situation where you built something 
it doesn't actually get reviewed for a few weeks. And then there is a bug and you have to go back and context switch off of what you're working on and go back and put a whole other mental model in place to go back and remember like, why did I use a switch statement here? Like, yeah, that's a bad example, but something to that yeah. effect. <laughs> well, I really try to avoid that scenario by having tight feedback loops, but you know, sometimes it's unavoidable. It might be you finish something right before a holiday or going away or something like that, that can happen. So it's happened to me before, yeah. Right. And how do you get your product people or, or your UAT teams? When do they get to touch the, the feature that you're working on? Right. It, it might. It's usually not until I've after code review when it's been merged into main and deployed to staging. Right. So yeah. that's kind of how we make that feedback mm -hmm. loop tighter. Uh, and what we've seen in practice actually is, you know, a lot faster, more reliable releases. And there's a significant increase in the cadence of releases that can happen and the, uh, the higher quality yeah. of those releases. You mentioned that some customers end up even getting rid of staging. And so that's really exciting and interesting to me. When they do that, what does the overall picture look like? Is the code merge manual? Or do you have customers that are sort of doing continuous deployment off of like, you know, a thumbs up from the person reviewing it in the ephemeral environment and getting that automatically emerged and then maybe canary deployed or something to production? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the thing to keep in mind here is that the majority of our customers are, are larger and they have bigger teams because um, mm -hmm. obviously this is a collaboration platform ultimately. And so... There's more value for the more complex teams and more stakeholders. So we don't have anybody to at this moment that I know of, there could be, um, doing just like LGTM is good enough. Um, so there's always a manual component. But what it looks like from a staging perspective is that your main branch is actually ostensibly your staging environment. Mm -hmm. um, and so all the ephemeral uh, environments are kind of sort of dev uh, environments that are shareable. And then when you merge, uh, because a code review passes and QA checks and UAT, then it gets automatically built into the to the main branch and the main environment. And then some people do QA, a final pass of QA or a final end-to-end -end test there. Um, and then there's also a manual promotion to production as well. Yeah. That's the typical pattern we've seen. Cool. One of the things that when I've used, it's a, sometimes a problem even with staging, but when I've used or been on projects with a, with some ephemeral environments, getting good data in those environments can sometimes be a challenge. Is that something that Shipyard helps with or what's your recommended approach to that problem? So that was one of the biggest problems we had early on. We put a lot of work into that. We, we kind of apply the same Git branch model to data. So the way that we do that is basically if you... Oh, by the way, I, I forgot to mention something. Um, mm -hmm. We use Docker Compose as our application definition. Okay. So we extrapolate from Docker Compose and transpile into best practice Kubernetes YAMLs. So there is a little bit of inferring and magic we do in certain places. And one of the places we do that is if you have a named volume. Um, sorry, am I getting too technical? Or is this... Is this not for me. In fact, <laughs> I have follow-up questions about why, why you 
have that approach. Yeah, uh, no, I converting. we will dive into that in a second. And I have a whole bunch of Red Hat friends that make fun of me about Compose all the time. But I stick to my guns on that one. But I'm happy to talk about that. Uh, high level, if you indicate to Shipyard, this is a persistent volume that we want to make sure that child environments get, then we will do an instant snapshot and we'll actually provide that to the the generated child ephemeral mm-hmm. environment. And ostensibly what that does is it allows you to, to test data migrations as well on these yeah. ephemeral environments. Now, to go back to your initial question, we encourage, and we're working on some partnerships actually with some interesting companies, but we encourage people to specifically uh, have their main data set on main be ostensibly a copy of whatever the, the good data set is, but mm-hmm. obviously pull out, you're kind of responsible for pulling out your own PII and, and right. confidential stuff there. Um, but the key thing here is you're kind of maintaining one environment with the right data on it. Mm-hmm. And then all of the subsequent generated ephemeral environments inherit that and can then change that. Yeah, that's cool. That that solves a real pain point that I've had in the past when trying to work this way. What, one company that I, I think is really interesting around this space uh, is Tonic. Dot AI, um, and we're actually working on some stuff with them, I think. But they're they we share an investor, so that's why I know them for disclaimer mm-hmm. purposes. But they're great, and they have some really cool tooling um, around like mapping your database to like PII and automatic detection of, of certain types of information that you don't want mm-hmm. pushed into your staging servers and into your developers' hands. So that that's one to check out too. Um, cool, looking for data help. So you want to get back to this Docker question? Why that approach of, of converting the Docker Compose into to YAML for Kubernetes? So this is quite the controversial uh, topic, <laughs> um, but I will tell you where it came from. Harkening back to our origin story, what we saw was we saw a pattern of a lot of companies going a little bit too all-in in Kubernetes, let's mm-hmm. just put it that way, where every single one of the developers is running Minikube or... Um, you know, even mm-hmm. K3S or K3D or whatever. And all of a sudden, the DevOps people and the SRE people in the organization are spending most of their time supporting developers' local development environments. So early on in that consulting game, we realized we don't want to do that. So if you want to work with us, we think you can use Docker Compose for most things. Now, that's obviously not always the case. There are some companies and, and, and applications that have hundreds of microservices. So obviously that's not a, Docker Compose is not a very realistic fit for those people. But the majority of people can pretty much encapsulate their application in Docker Compose. So that, that's one thing. The other thing is, is I mentioned to you that I'm a DevOps engineer for years. I'm sick of new YAML formats or mm-hmm. specifications. So I have a saying, uh, not another YAML. I mm-hmm. say nay. My co-founder, Peter, hates when I say that, but whatever. I like it. <laughs> so that's another piece of this. And then the biggest thing here is that we kind of look at Docker Compose as like rabbit ears on a television set. So, you know, like a 98-year-old grandmother can somehow make the, like stand on one foot and like hold the antenna the right way and s- static in the mm-hmm. picture is perfect and they can watch I don't know why I'm saying Jay Leno. I don't think it's on the air anymore. But, you know, it's like sticking with the grandma yeah. reference. Uh, humans are really good at <laughs> figuring out stuff like that. And that's kind of what Docker Compose is. is it's kind of like, mm-hmm. like if you can make it work locally, 
shipyard's going to take care of the rest and, and kind of and clean up a bunch of stuff for you. So that's yeah. kind of how we look at it. Admittedly, we do have some Helm stuff we're working on, some customized with a K stuff. Um, and there's a whole lot of other interesting things out there. But frankly, we haven't run into problems with our current approach. And when we have tried to ingest raw manifests and stuff like that, other issues tend to arise. So we kind of use Compose as a, as a funnel to be very opinionated about our Kubernetes deployments. Yeah. Well, I'm a big believer in, especially in early days, having opinions about things. And, you know, it sounds like with this particular opinion, you not only can sort of help people at different stages and say that this is good enough, but you're also hitting sort of a casting a, a wide net for what, what people can do. You're not cutting people off because they don't already use customize or something like that. Yeah. And it's about accessibility. A lot of it is about accessibility. And so it's, it's, it's proven to be a, a pretty interesting thing. We didn't think that we were going to go this far with it. We really thought that we were going to get in trouble soon, but it's pretty cool how it's, it's going. And also I will uh, do a shout out to the Docker compose community is like, there's like, they're, they're picking up some steam here. I think, I think a lot of people are realizing that it's a pretty good spec uh, for most use cases. So um, I know that Docker released somewhat recently. You don't have to do Docker dash compose anymore. It's just mm-hmm. Docker space compose. And there's all kinds of compose specification stuff that I think is worth checking out. I wanted to tell you all about something I've been working on quietly for the past year or so, and that's AgencyU. AgencyU is a membership-based program where I work one-on-one with a small group of agency founders and leaders toward their business goals. We do one-on-one coaching sessions and also monthly group meetings. We start with goal setting, advice, and problem solving based on my experiences over the last 18 years of running ThoughtBot. As we progress as a group, we all get to know each other more, and many of the agency you members are now working on client projects together and even referring work to each other. Whether you're struggling to grow an agency, taking it to the next level and having growing pains, or a solo founder who just needs someone to talk to, in my 18 years of leading and growing ThoughtBot, I've seen and learned from a lot of different situations, and I'd be happy to work with you. Learn more and sign up today at ThoughtBot.com agencyu. That's A-G-E-N-C-Y, the letter U. So to get a little bit meta for a minute, how do you use Shipyard on Shipyard? Uh, the ultimate dog food. Um, that is one of the biggest selling points to uh, our own engineering team when recruiting. We've, we've got a pretty spectacular team. Um, that comes from some pretty awesome companies. And people sometimes ask me like, hey, how did you get these engineers? Um, And honestly, I think the answer is dog fooding because what we're building is kind of what every DevOps engineer sets out to build every time they start their job, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. Um, You know, you always want this ephemeral type of elastic environments are only on when you need them to be on. I, I didn't discuss this, but we also have functionality um, that we call SLV or since last visit. So we know the last time someone went to one of these environments and we'll turn it off for you. And then obviously it's very quick to turn it back on um, when needed. So, you know, there's cost savings there. There's all kinds of stuff there. But ultimately, um, we're kind of building the ultimate DevOps tool. And so 
we use Shipyard to run Shipyard. Um, we use it in our QA process. We use it in our end-to-end testing process. And uh, uh, we also actually have, uh, we use it in our production process as well. We have some of our, we, we, do, have a, we do have a production offering and mm-hmm. we use that ourselves for our stuff. So it, it's a very recursive conversation around that. And sometimes when I'm actually doing a demo for various people, um, the only way to show, or the only good demo I have of certain functionality is to actually show the shipyard organization itself in yeah. shipyard. And I get very recursively tied up and people get confused and it's always a bad idea. Yeah, we have to cue the inception music. Here. Yeah, exactly. It gets, it, we're at like the third level. We're at like the the ice palace or whatever, ice hideout at this point. That's from the movie Inception for those that don't know what we're talking about. Yeah, that's really cool. I imagine that sometimes when I'm working on a project and you get down sort of to the instrumentation level, to those levels, it can be difficult to sort of run the system on the system. Have there been sort of particular challenges? Like it's not just a normal web app, I guess is the way of saying that what Shipyard is, isn't just a normal web app. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we do is that we have a pretty robust security posture. So every single one of our customers gets their own cluster. Hmm. Um, And so our security model is using the the hypervisor, basically. Which, by the way, for anyone looking at Kubernetes, forget Shipyard for a second. Please understand that if you're in a shared namespace, anything, RBAC is great, but it's don't do it. There's a CVE around the corner, I promise you. Um, Don't do it. Um, Anyway. That's a good PSA for people. Yeah, right? Like, yeah. But yeah, so some of the cool challenges we've had is we early on, we definitely had some stuff where like if we did a bad release, mm-hmm. we would break our uh, own ability to fix our own releases. Right. So that, that, was, that was way early on. We, we figured that one out very early. Like I think that was even before we were a, a product even. That was, just, that was just a few like sleepless nights of Peter and myself being like, oh God, we got to fix this so that we don't screw up this client's website. But uh, so that's been interesting. I mean, that was really it. And and I and my my co-founder Peter is listening to this, and he's like, there are four thousand different things I've fixed over the last few years mm-hmm. that were a problem around this, and I can't bring them up. But I, there's a lot, and I don't know what they are. And Peter is very good at fixing them. So that just speaks to my co-founder and yeah. the rest of the team. Um, so you mentioned that March of 2020 happened, um, hell froze over, and you found yourself. You know, thinking you're going to take a different path and fundraise and become a you know funded company. How difficult did you find fundraising in that environment, or was it easy? It was real tough at the beginning. There, mm-hmm. for one, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's just the truth. Uh, maybe I should say that in the past tense. I, yeah. I had no idea. What I'd be, I still feel like I have no idea what I'm doing. But um, like I said, I come from the technical side and I'm a bit of an engineer. So, you know, if a VC asks me a question and the answer is yes, but I have to qualify it with some weird edge case that I came up with, yeah. that's not a great look for these types of pitch meetings. So I would suggest people not over-engineer answers to questions. Like yes or no works very often. But uh, so it was, it was challenging. But also at the time, I'll say that there was definitely some, some predatory term sheets going around because yeah. like this was like really early and like we had no idea. And I was, I was, I was a fool. I wasn't a fool, but I, I had no idea. Like I, we we're running this consulting company and 
I'm like, oh my God, all my customers are funded. They're all going to go away. We had some pretty large customers. It was very irrational looking back, but you know, it was a crazy time. Also, I should mention that we're in New York. So mm-hmm. things were heightened a lot more also uh, in, in March of 2020. <laughs> it was just like, it was, yeah. it was very intense. And so I had to learn a lot. And basically the, the realization like, oh, if the world becomes remote, software is just going to go crazy had not seeped into my brain quite yet in March or April. So did a lot of learning that way. Was very fortunate to have some really helpful people along that path and uh, eventually kind of figured it out. I will say, funny story, I literally didn't have a pitch for like three months. Like I would just do a demo and talk about stuff. Uh And then a friend of mine was like, oh, what's your pitch? And I was like, I do a demo and I talk about it. He's like, dude, you got to have a pitch. So that helped a lot uh, once I figured out that I needed it. It did help. So you, you recommend people have a pitch? I would say that that, uh, that, that is a positive, yes. Having a pitch is, is helpful. I, I know that that's a ridiculous statement here, but I, I literally didn't have – I just didn't think about, like, what's my pitch? Well, I think it's simultaneously a ridiculous thing, but also, like, you know, there exist in the world things that people do just because that's the way that they're done. And so – it's valid, I think, to say, like, do we really need that? Can we get by without it? And if, you know, the lesson learned there is actually there's a reason why people do it and it is valuable, that's that's a valuable lesson. It's too bad you had to go through it to discover it. But Well, yeah, no, I, I, I look back fondly at that. And I wouldn't say I was being contrarian. I was just kind of mm-hmm. being a jackass, frankly. But uh, learned a lot. And honestly, it, it, in the end, I, I couldn't be happier. I'm pretty anti-VC. Everyone knows that about me. I like to make fun of them and all these things. But I couldn't be happier with our investors, and they've been unbelievably supportive. And so that's been a super positive. The one thing I would say to anyone listening to this podcast that has to go out and raise money is you got to get really good at letting things roll off your shoulder. As an engineer, it's really hard for me to deal with any level of rejection because I'm, I'm like, oh, it works or it doesn't work oh, you found this edge case that I didn't think about? Oh, you got me, but I'll fix it now and now it's fine. Um, that's not the way that fundraising works. You know, you have certain conversations, you, you feel super positive, and then all of a sudden you don't hear back from this person for weeks at a time. You have other conversations where you think that it was the worst thing that you've ever done, and the next day you get a term sheet. I had one pitch. That This is when I knew how to do a pitch. Okay, this is a few months in. Um, I had this one pitch that was, it was all virtual and it was very early days in our remote world. And um, there was like, I don't know, four partners on this call and like a few associates, whatever. And I do the pitch, but everyone is muted on Zoom for 45 minutes. Now, it's pretty clear from our conversation. I do like, I, I talk a lot, so it's not the end of the world. But like, I had no idea what was going on. And I just thought that I had bombed it. It was horrible all these things. And the next day I got an email and it was like three introductions to like amazing opportunities. And two of them actually panned out. We didn't end up going with that fund, but I just thought it was hilarious that like, I, 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 I was convinced that I just like, I shouldn't be doing this. And, and it was the opposite. So you never know you. That's the other thing I learned. Yeah. You literally can never know what, yeah. what's going to, what's going to come of any particular meeting in the VC fundraising world. So how long did it take you from the point that you decided you were going to do this and you were going to start trying to fundraise to actually getting the investment in the bank? 
probably like four to six months. Um, we obviously had some opportunities, but I was very much, as we went through and through this process, realizing that having the right partner for the next seven to 10 years was really important. Yeah. And we ended up with our lead. I can't believe I'm talking positively about a VC on a podcast, but whatever. Um, our lead, Owen Davis from Contour Ventures. Contour is like this New York fund that like they do everything, but no one knows their name. Oh, he's going to love that I said that, but whatever. Um, they're great. He's great. And he's kind of the dream investor for us to lead. And then we have other, and then I'll, I'll mention Shruthi over to Ray and, and the folks at Heavybit and Workbench as well. Um, they're all in this round and like it all kind of came together. And I was a little... I was a little picky, so we kind of took our time. Um, mm-hmm. And I and I suggest that if you have that luxury, which we did because we kind of already had a successful consulting business, make sure you know who you're getting into uh, to business with for sure. And, and we got very lucky with that. So how much time while you were fundraising did you personally work on that as opposed to other things for the product or the business? Probably. I, I should have probably put a little bit more time into the fundraising, to be honest with you. I, I would say I probably put 50 to 60% of my energy into the fundraise, and then the 40% was all building product. Um, as an engineer, you know, you have a really frustrating call, or you think you're doing well, and then you're not, or vice versa. So for me, I would retreat into building. And so I probably retreated into building a little more than I should have, to be frank, but, uh, but it worked out in the end. While you were doing that, you supported yourselves from the consulting revenue? Yeah, for the most part. Yeah, we, mm-hmm. we, we still had active clients. So we, all, we converted most of those, actually all of those into shipyard customers. And, and they were very supportive in that process, by the way, very doing due diligence calls for us. Um, it was, it was, they were all very helpful. Great. How did you decide how much money you should be seeking to raise? Ultimately, that was something I struggled with mm-hmm. just because I really want to know what I'm going to do and what the plan is. And And one of the lessons that I've learned as a, as a CEO now is your job is basically to make unbelievably important critical decisions with little to no data and just hope you're making the right one and then adjust quickly if you're not. So understanding when you've made the wrong decision. But ultimately, to, to answer your question, I built out a spreadsheet. I kind of had a wish list of engineers that I knew or, or positions that we needed to fill. Probably underestimated some of the product marketing needs that we would we need to do, but built out a, a model and then figured, hey, what can we, how can we get there in 18 to, to 24 months to, to get to the next round? Because you really do have to be making sure that you can... I mentioned the hamster wheel early on. Maybe that's too negative of a... Of a analogy there, but you have to be thinking about your next round. And so you have to get to what metrics you want to hit and you kind of just work backwards from there. Mm -hmm. At what point along the way, you mentioned earlier that your customers tend to be larger companies. At what point along the way did you sort of discover who your ideal customers were? I think we're still discovering that. Mm -hmm. We're still figuring that out. But for me, like this tool, Shipyard, and I've seen it. If you start using a tool like Shipyard, like from day one, mm-hmm. the gains and the benefits are like just an insane. Uh, we had one company that started off um, from scratch with us, and within two months, they had like an extremely robust uh, software development lifecycle, uh, production deploys, all kinds of stuff. And, and they've been going now for years with us, or not years, but like a year and a half or so with us, and super successful. Um, so I always wanted to be like, oh, startup 
X with two engineers, you should use us. And yeah. the more we talked to them, you know, the more conversations we had, we're just like, this is not a DevOps priority. Like DevOps right. is not the priority. Well, and especially in those early days, I feel like there's such a tendency, especially from engineers to say, oh, that's not that complicated. I can, I can do that. Exactly. Or we don't really need that. Let's piece together this. Yeah, that's exactly right. So then as we started to talk more and more and understand what people were doing, we just kind of fell into this ICP of or initial customer profile of, of more complex teams that are really facing these problems. I mean, specifically, when you get to a certain size, a bad release costs you a lot of money, mm-hmm. right? Customer success, customers that are, are leaving you, frustrated sales execs, frustrated product people, frustrated QA people. So it's when you get to these more complex levels is when you need this type of tooling. Um, now, one thing Shipyard released actually over very, very quietly, but you know, it's released, we released uh, a 30-day free trial. So you can actually, it's kind of like our light tier. So people can start doing it. And we're starting to see some people at the earlier stage companies starting to do this, which is exciting to us. Mm-hmm. But our, our goal as a company is absolutely to, to figure out um, how to get this to the masses because this is, ephemeral environments is the paradigm of the future. I mean, it's of the paradigm of the present with the, with the big tech companies and it's now coming down to the rest of us. And so instead of having to hire five DevOps people to build the system out for you for six months, you hire one DevOps person and that per- DevOps person kind of shifts into an SRE role, not entirely, but mm-hmm. their concerns are more about reliability of the actual site rather than reliability for developer environments or QA environments or staging environments. So yeah. we think that's really powerful. One thing that I probably should have mentioned way sooner is we have a community site that we've donated and we're more than happy to have some pull requests come in we've had a few um ephemeral environments.io yeah i don't know how to spell ephemeral either but <laughs> but you can google it and it'll come up uh, ephemeral environments.io and it's it's basically it goes through the different use cases of ephemeral environments and, and where there's value there so that's kind of the goal with all of this so what are you working on now and, and what is the next stage for the company, I guess that also from a product perspective, but also you mentioned that hamster wheel, uh, <laughs> you're, you're coming up on 18 months of being on that wheel, right? We are. One thing is we've had some success, so our revenue is pretty solid, but no rest for the weary. We're, we're probably going to go out and, 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 and bring in some more capital pretty soon. Um, and the reason for that because that's always the important thing to me, is that we have some pretty spectacular design partners, some pretty big logos, all these things. The product is there. The product is is killing it. I couldn't be more proud of the product and the team. We've also started to build out the core team. Couldn't be more proud of that. Um, and so now we need to accelerate um, and figure out, uh, you know, figure out our next steps and, and how to bring this to the masses. And, and ultimately, the vision... Um, of shipyard is to you know make all this stuff move a lot faster, uh, bring velocity to teams and, and all that stuff, and, and we believe that ephemeral environments are a huge uh, component of that. So we're probably you know in the next few months going to probably go out and, and and look at our financing options. I, I will say that the market has been a little insane, um, so I feel like all the education that I got in 2022. 
um, is probably out the window because, yeah. you know, some of these valuations and other stuff seems like it's a frothy market, as they say. But we'll be doing that. And we're really going to probably double down on figuring out what the community needs and, and where the value is for the community. So both with ephemeralenvironments.io, but also there's some really cool internal tools that we've built that kind of solve some of the the issues within the, the Kubernetes ecosystem. Okay, maybe that's a strong word. They help a lot. I'm never going to say I've solved anything in Kubernetes. <laughs> but they help a lot with understanding why the state of your application is maybe not where you want it to be. And so we're, we'd like to probably contribute a bit more back to CNCF in particular, but open source in general. So building out, uh, continue to build the team to, to work on that. And then obviously pushing forward with, with product and some pretty cool stuff we have on the roadmap that we're really excited about. Awesome. Well, I wish you all the best with that. If folks want to find out more about Shipyard, follow along with you, get in touch, where are the best places for them to do that? It's really uh, shipyard.build is our website. And that is probably the best place to try it and also to contact us. Our Twitter is shipyardbuild, twitter.com slash shipyardbuild. I personally am not a fan of Twitter, so I personally don't use Twitter. But we do as a company. And I think that our, our Twitter and, uh, and our website are, are probably the best thing to reach out to and obviously sales at shipyard.build you can send an email there but i think you probably find the information you're looking for on the website and if not please let us know what's missing and you mentioned the free trial so i feel like that's a great thing for people who want to get more into the product where they can give it a try right yeah and one thing to to note about the free trial the reason that it's kind of cool is it's your own cluster you get your own cluster it's completely single tenant um it's pretty dope it's pretty cool and you can really take it for a spin. I would suggest, I mean, we've had a lot of success with companies that are using Docker Compose already to just kind of just dive in there um, and get their application running. But I would say that we have some pretty cool starter apps as well. Um, they're linked in our docs and our GitHub. Just kind of seeing the power of this through our starter applications has is, is also been a great experience for a lot of people. So I'd suggest taking a look at that. Oh, and uh, I should plug uh, a podcast that I'm a co-host of. All right, yeah. Cube list. Um, I do that with Mark Campbell from Replicated, um, where we interview CNCF open source projects all the time. That's why I got to be careful pretending like I'm solving anything. There's a lot of <laughs> options in the Kubernetes landscape. Wonderful. You can subscribe to the show, find notes and a full transcript of this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at host at giantrobots.fm and you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Mandy Moore. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.